There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. I'm looking forward to an informative conversation with today's guest, Demetra Manis. She's the Chief Purpose Officer for S&P Global, overseeing people, marketing, corporate responsibility, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and communications. And she also serves as a board member at S&P Dow Jones Indices. A native of Australia before joining S&P Global, Demetra led teams at such storied companies as Revlon, Nike, Estee Lauder, AXA Group, Thomson Reuters, and Village Roadshow, among others. She's a trusted advisor to CEOs, executive teams, and boards of directors on business, compensation, organizational change, diversity, talent strategies, mergers and acquisitions, and crisis management. Demetra Manis, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Before we start, you know, I was doing some research on your bio and I forgot uh, you're native of Australia, and so my listeners know that I uh, spent some time and lived in New Zealand, and so I think the next time the Wallabies and All Blacks get together, we have to have a, uh, a friendly wager on that. Absolutely. I do love the All Blacks too, though, by the way. And it's, it's your sister, your cousin, I should say. Absolutely. So that was a lengthy uh, introduction in terms of all your roles and responsibilities. You take on a lot, marketing, crisis communications, corporate responsibility, and so much more. Since this podcast is about empowerment, wellness, and leadership through adversity, let's just jump right into it. You have a tremendous amount of responsibility over a wide range of topics. How do you stay on top of all of it? I try and sleep well, and I try and eat well, and I do try to exercise. So I try and balance uh, all of the aspects that are important in order to be able to function uh, normally, because uh, you can't you can't do it um, without uh, really looking after your body, your mind, your spiritual self. Like, like the whole thing is, has to be complete. Yeah, and more so than ever now, as we've gone through COVID the last 18 months or so with, unfortunately, no end in sight. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the show. But let's back up for a moment, if we could. Could you please tell our audience a bit about S&P Global? What does it do? Where is it located? How many employees does it have? Sure. And Chris, uh, we have about uh, 23,000 employees uh, across 35 countries. We have four uh, distinct business divisions, um, which is ratings, market intelligence, indices, and Platts businesses. So there's the four divisions. And our, our real purpose is really just accelerating progress in the world uh, by providing essential intelligence to financial markets. It's a fantastic purpose and we love what we do. So is a chief purpose officer's job to determine the company's purpose or to help other people determine their purpose? Could you share what a a CPO does, please? (laughs) Love the question. So, um, you know, we are a purpose-driven organization like uh, like most organizations, you know, but our purpose is to serve all our key stakeholders, you know, people, our customers, our shareholders, the communities that we live in, and we're committed to uh, more than ever an inclusive and sustainable business. We have, um, you know, we have, um, you know, 
we look at the purpose team, it's a new team. And we've created that because we believe that we want to have meaningful impact across those stakeholders. So it's not just for our people, it's not just for our customers, it's not just for our shareholders or our communities, it's all of them. So, you know, this new function is about really creating a positive force of positive change uh, for those stakeholders. And is this a role that you expect to see more companies create? Because I haven't heard of this, you know, in the industry at least. It's very new. And um, I think it'll be a trend. I really do. I don't think uh, I don't think it's uh, caught on yet, but it will for sure. So we were speaking of leadership through adversity. During the COVID nineteen pandemic, you were chosen as co leader of the S and P Global COVID nineteen Steering Committee. In that role, you informed the CEO and board of directors about critical business continuity decisions. How did that team approach the pandemic, and how it had affected employees' lives? And how is it different from other companies? It's been an honor, to be honest. Let me start with it. It's been an honor to work uh, in, in Steerco and to co-lead it with my colleague, Steve Kemps, who's a um, general counsel of the company. Um, we had to adapt very quickly. Um, we hired very quickly a medical consultant. Um, the steering committee worked really well together. Um, we had daily meetings in the beginning, and you know that is not a, a usual sort of way of operating. But because it was a crisis, we all understood that we needed to work together, make decisions very quickly, which we did, um, and we responded very quickly. Our mission was to protect the safety of our twenty-three thousand employees. That was our sole mission, and to keep the business moving at the pace that it needed to move. So those two in, didn't contradict each other. In fact, we, you know, when you have a primary mission to actually protect your people and to run your business, um, they worked very well hand in hand. And I think the team did a beautiful job uh, making decisions quickly, moving people out of their offices, moving technology and responding then also to um, some of the health issues that our employees had um, and continue to have with this crisis. Full and fair disclosure to our listeners, I am an employee of S&P Global. Uh, and when Dimitri and I spoke about this a couple of days ago, uh, you know, I'd mentioned to her that I've worked for several very large organizations throughout my career. And, you know, I just want to give hats off to, to Dimitri and team because they've done everything right throughout this process and truly have put people first. Uh, you know, I live about 40 miles outside New York City, and I remember walking to the office on Monday, March 9th, and there were maybe about 10% of the normal employees there. So things were really just starting to, to roll out from COVID. And I just kind of got the sense like, okay, something isn't right here, and just took my laptop and, and went home. Uh, but the firm has really had the vision to be able to react and respond to, unfortunately, situations like this where they don't miss a beat. Nothing happens. It, it is business as usual. The business continuity plan, from my perspective, has been flawless. And so, again, hats off and compliments to you and to senior management for that. Thanks, Chris. We, make sure we, make sure Doug hears that. I will. I will. <laughs> you should uh, we, you should send him an email. <laughs> but, uh, we, we do always put our people first, and, and we've led with empathy all the way here. That being said, what lessons should business leaders and everyday employees take from the pandemic and its effects on the workplace that can better prepare them for the future? I think, Chris, uh, the pandemic has taught us a lot of things, and one of them in particular is the 
it's critical for leaders to um, really lead with empathy. There's no doubt about that. That is probably the, the most amplified skill that's been necessary for all leaders throughout this uh, last 18 months or so. So, you know, I think um, I think definitely at S&P Global, we've seen some of the finest leaders come forward and, and lead. And, you know, we have thousands of people, as you know, and 1,000 leaders uh, working with their teams and supporting them. And I just think they've done an incredible job putting people first. Same question beyond the workplace. As we now cope with what I call COVID 2.0, the Delta variant, the Lambda variant, whatever the next breakout letter is, what can we do holistically to make better, make life better? I think we shouldn't forget the learnings. I think we should make sure that we are compassionate caring individuals in the workplace and outside of the workplace. I also think that the agile nature of what we've learned around this crisis and how we've had to operate, I think that's really important for us to keep that agility as we move forward. And we've, we along the way tested a lot of things and learned a lot of things. I don't think any of us have lived through a pandemic before, so this was all new to all of us. And I think that test and learn methodology served us well, and I think we should continue to do that. Um, and that, I think, is, is if we can just do those few things, I think we'd, we'll be in a better place. You're renowned for leading a people-first experience at S&P Global. A lot of companies and leaders talk about putting people first, but their actions don't match up to their words. What's the difference between talking the talk and walking the walk? You know, maybe in other words, what does a truly authentic people-first philosophy look like? I love the people-first mantra that we have here at S&P Global. It, um, it started three and a half years ago, and you know, Chris, very well, the um, people-first 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, right now we're at 7.0. All those initiatives before COVID were all about changing the way we interact with our people and making it a, a better experience for our people. During the pandemic, we've heard the expression, it's okay to not be okay. Where does mental health fit into a company's people-first strategy? It's a primary piece of it. It is absolutely okay not to be okay because um, we all face difficulties sometime, you know, during our, at some point in our lives. And it's critical that we support our people and take a holistic view of supporting them. It's not just, again, thinking about people in the workplace about their jobs. It's about how they are feeling, how they, you know, how they, you know, how their mental health is at this present time. You know, you can't expect people to perform at their best if they're not getting the proper support, right? And people need support. I know I've reached out um, at different stages of my life for support through, um, you know, some therapists, through uh, the hotline that we have, the employee assistance program. Uh, you know, there is a huge focus on wellness that we have here at S&P Global and we'll continue that. And it's not just physical health and medical health, it's mental health. And it's, it's emotional support and psychological safety that people need every day in their working life. You've noted that empathetic leadership was key to your work leading the S&P Global Steering Committee that responded to COVID-19. That leads me to ask the question, is empathy a skill set? Empathy is definitely a skill. I don't believe you're just born with it. You can develop it. And I've seen leaders develop it 
very well in the last 18 months. People who have surprised me, um, some of our um, less experienced leaders have just been phenomenal. They've developed it quickly and they've put it in action quickly. And I just think uh, it is definitely a learned skill. You've worked in a diverse range of industries, consumer goods, financial services, entertainment, communications, and data information technology. Is there a reinvention or a mental reset, if you will, that has to take place every time someone moves from one big sector to another? Yes, Chris, there's definitely a reset. You have to learn a whole new business and a whole new industry every time um, you move uh, industries and companies. And you have to establish relationships all from scratch again. And that's definitely, that is a drain on your mental health too. It's not just a drain on your physical um, well-being. And you have to be in a, in a different place to be able to really cope with that change. Um, but you learn a lot and you grow a lot. And uh, the experiences, uh, I wouldn't change anything about the experiences I've had to date. All too often, we limit ourselves, and many people spend their entire career in a single industry. How can we know if a leap like those that you've taken is going to be the right leap for us? Well, you don't know, right? But here's some tips. I don't think anyone should ever work for a company that's not reputable. I don't think anyone should ever compromise their value set or compromise um, integrity. There's no doubt about it that uh, they are critical components of part of the decision-making process. I also think that you have to really do your homework, really know the company and know the culture because the culture is really what tells you how things work. Well, how do they make decisions? How do they feel about people? What do they do? Do they put people first, not not put people first? I think that's an important piece. So I, I would say make sure you love the job that you're going to go and do. Make sure you absolutely love the company that you're going to. Make sure the manager or the leader you're going to work with has actually got you and only you as a, you know, as a critical focus point and are committed to your development and your growth. You've lived and worked in many countries across Asia, Europe, and North America. What are some of the cultural norms or customs that you appreciate most among the places you've lived? What have been some of the most challenging adjustments you've had to make? As an Australian um, and and raised as an Australian, most Australians are sort of uh, stereotyped as being incredibly laid back and uh, direct. I think I had a lot of directness when I grew up in Australia and I still am direct, but it took a lot of work when I went to France and lived in France. I had to sort of smooth out those edges of directness and learn a different skill. You can still be honest and you can still be um, uh, very courageous without being super direct um, because it's seen sometimes that it's offensive and uh, out of place for certain cultures. So I, I had to really work on that. I think some people here would still say I'm very direct. There's no doubt about that and definitely bold and I say what I think, um, but I try and do it respectfully and thoughtfully um, and without compromising um, my views. I've read that having a wealth of... One example, Chris. There's plenty of examples (laughs) I can give you. That's just one big example. No, that's a great example. I appreciate that. I've read that having a wealth of diverse experiences, such as those that you've had in different countries, makes it easier to understand people at different cultures and backgrounds. 
How can we create a greater wealth of experience in our own lives in this age of COVID, especially when travel is restricted? Well, the more we work with people who are different to us, we get to practice that skill more, Chris. If we keep sort of working and socializing with people that are exactly like us, it doesn't help our growth. So you don't have to necessarily travel to experience the diversity or live in different countries. It's really your social network needs to be different in order for you to practice that skill. So I'm all for people sort of exploring and expanding and learning from other people that are not necessarily thinking the same way or looking the same way as them. We've been talking to Dimitri Manis. I'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As we continue on life's journey, there are certain situations which we all must face. Care and treatment don't always measure up to what it's supposed to be, and there are many questions that need to be answered. Tune in to Senior Straight Talk with host Phyllis Amon. Seniors deserve to have a purposeful and passionate, fulfilling life, and we'll bring you the information that you need to hear to make it happen. Listen on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platform. Are you disenchanted by the saccharine-laced stories that you were told when you were younger? Behind every success, there is a hidden journey filled with triumph and defeat. On From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay, you'll hear about the challenges that our guests had to overcome to become the successful people that they are today. Listen live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You have the power to be stronger, live fearlessly, and enjoy the benefits of a great life. Listen for Fearlessly Authentic with host Jody Harrison Bauer. Jody has proven at an age when many start to slow down that she is just getting started. With two grown daughters, a successful business that she started at 50, a finalist in the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue, and a two-time world bikini champion, she's ready to take you to the next level in your life. Fearlessly Authentic airs Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on Voice America Empowerment. Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self? Can you really be a better person overnight? Well, good luck with that. Now, if you really want to know more about this insane world and life we lead, tune into Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. You'll learn about how the brain operates under different psychological conditions. Some common sense. Heck, you might just actually learn something. Listen Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. 
www.thepowerhouse.com. Now, back to this week's show. We're back with Demetra Manis, Chief Purpose Officer for S&P Global, overseeing people, marketing, corporate responsibility, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and communications. We were talking about cultural diversity. No matter what industry we're talking about, equal pay, advancement, breaking the glass ceiling, those have been daunting issues for women for decades. Are we really getting any closer to equity? And what's it going to take to finally get there? Love that question, Chris. I think we're very close to equity, especially S&P Global. Uh, We do analysis every year and we um, are super close. Um, In fact, um, we are disclosing all that information now, so it's it's terrific. So um, we share our uh, gender pay gap data. We um, share our demographic data. And transparency is key here. We have to acknowledge that there's an opportunity to improve, obviously, um, and just take action. Get Put a plan in place and take action. And that's what we do here. Balancing family and work, even when women reach senior level positions, is still something that falls more on women than men. How do we level the playing field in that respect? Well, we need to support women in all aspects of work, and there's no doubt um, that that has to take place. And part of that means that, you know, we're not making parenthood a penalty for advancement. And I think we've, um, we have general neutral parental leave here at S&P Global. We offer 20 weeks, uh, giving equal leave to our colleagues uh, who are men so that they can also participate and help um, and enabling them to support the women in their lives or, or their partners um, really helps them sort of expand their roles. We, you know, we have care leave that we offered during COVID. I think that really has helped, particularly helped um, single mothers, but also um, women and men who have taken a, a lead role in caring for either their children or their parents or a family member. So it's it's so important as leaders that we continually, you know, continually sort of keep that flexibility as well for people, sort of giving them the flexibility around work hours and locations. So I think, um, you know, levelling that playing field is really key and I think we've done a nice job there. I'll actually admit, I thought about having another child given the expansion that S&P Global offered for, uh, for fathers <laughs> to stay home. <laughs> I did contemplate it, but for <laughs> one second. <laughs> perhaps it's because of a lack of mentors or perhaps it's for other reasons, but it seems that younger women tend to take fewer of the career risks that we better position them for leadership roles later on. How do we break that mold? I think it's it's difficult to sometimes find a mentor, right? It's not uh, it's not always. Um, you know, people have taken a chance on me in my career, and people have shared a lot of their own personal time to help you know grow me. And I think that that's what we all need to do. We all need to you know spend some time mentoring um, other people so that we can also grow them. Along that line, a vice president with Western Union said one of the main hurdles she faced was that she was frequently too afraid to say, yes, I can do that, when there was a role which she thought a man would be more suited for. How do you foster in young women that sense of confidence and ability to communicate the considerable value they bring to the table? I think it's just merely getting them to practice asking. So I know when people come and ask me about either their pay, um, it doesn't matter how senior or junior they are, I will absolutely help them because I think we have to encourage them to be able to ask the question and reinforce that in a positive way and encouraging them by saying, look, 
you know, you're incredibly courageous coming forward. That's exactly what you should be asking and don't don't be embarrassed and don't feel bad about asking the question and rewarding them almost for asking. Uh, I think that's important, encouraging them and then rewarding them for the ask. If someone is thinking about a career in the financial sector for themselves or for someone else, what, what should they do? What advice would you give them? Well, make sure firstly that you do your homework uh, and that you understand the industry that you're going into. So make sure you understand the financial sector is huge and there's so many different roles and so many different ways you can take your career. So really get to understand that. Talk to a lot of people that are working in the industry or working in areas that um, interest you. And of course, what I would say is meet them, meet them, talk to them, and then take a risk, take a chance and move forward. The financial sector was a male-dominated industry for decades, and it's still seen as a dog-eat-dog business. Why would women want to come into an industry with that kind of history and reputation? Well, it's changed, Chris, and I definitely started my career in banking and finance, and I was one of those very few women uh, that were in um, positions uh, of influence. And I think what you have to do is just be a leader, a change leader, go in and be prepared to help change it. And it's not the industry that it was 30 years ago and it's definitely not the industry that it was 10 years ago. It's definitely changed. I think it's a fantastic industry. It's been phenomenal for me personally in my, in, the, in my own individual growth and I've seen a lot of women thrive. So don't be afraid of moving forward and just forget about the past, move forward. Be a change leader. I love that. That's, uh, those are terrific words to live by. So, so thank you for sharing that, that concept of that thought. As a chief purpose officer, what advice do you have for people in our audience to create a greater sense of purpose for either themselves or where they work? Well, we all need purpose in our lives, right? And whether it's at home or in the workplace, I think you have to identify with the purpose of the company that you work for and help bring that to life in the workplace. I think that's something that everyone can do. And I think, you know, I have purpose in my life. I mean, I'm very clear of what I want in my own life with my own family and I try and live by that, you know, and having that discussion as a family or having that discussion with your partner is really important. Make sure you're aligned on purpose. And then again, it's all about taking action. It's all about taking action, you know, believing in it and then, acting on it and it's a bit like what we said about people first you know you can talk about it but if you don't act then it's meaningless you know you have to have purpose believe in it and act along those lines what parting advice do you have for audience to feel more empowered lead through adversity and achieve their goals I always like to think, don't just talk about empowerment, live empowerment, right? Live those, you know, you can, you know, have to understand empowerment and then you have to live it and act it. Um, So I would just say, flip the switch very quickly. Don't think about being disempowered, always empower yourself and make sure you have people around you that support you to be empowered. Have a supportive manager, have a supportive partner, have a supportive family, supportive friends. And if some of those are missing, look for others, find new channels to have support networks that help you grow and help you be more empowered in your day-to-day life. We've been speaking with S&P Global's Chief Purpose Officer, Demetra Manis. Demetra, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Chris. It's good to be here. No, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Take care. We'll be right back after a short break. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a closer look at yourself in the present. Your body has its own GPS system designed to help you follow your intuition, align your thoughts, and set your own course. Host Daily is here to be your external guide to this discovery. Take a break, a mindful space to pause, and help bring forth the balance that your life deserves. Listen live for Mindful Space to Pause every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Unravel the mysteries of metaphysics every week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Join host Barb Crowley as she and her insightful guest share what's been learned behind the veil, going just beyond our five senses. Now you can see things with an entirely different point of view. Tune in for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil, broadcasting live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Use it to explore your advantage and deeper understanding. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to Chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. And we've been speaking with S&P Global's Chief Purpose Officer, Dimitri Manis. Now, we're going to try and switch gears a bit and try to do a little something different today. This Saturday, September 11th, 2021, marks the 20th anniversary of a turning point in our country's history. It was a day of tragedy and fury that shocked Americans who weren't there, forever changed those of us who were, took so many loved ones from so many people, and for a time, unified all Americans. The attacks on the World Trade Center the Pentagon, and the lives of those brave souls on United Flight 93 who crashed near Shanksville, Pennsylvania to prevent that jet from being crashed into either the White House or the U.S., U.S. Capitol, excuse me, claimed 2,996 lives. More than 6,000 others were injured. It has been reported that more than 1,400 9-11 first responders have since died. More than 1,140 were diagnosed with cancer attributed to exposure to toxins at ground zero. Of the estimated 90,000 people who fate brought to ground zero or the landfill where the debris of the destroyed towers and surrounding buildings, it has been reported that more than 40,000 have experienced health problems. That was one of the things I remember from that day. The smoke, dust, and debris in the air was so thick it was impossible to see. There was shock, disbelief, fear, and confusion. Today, 9-11 is still with us. It's in us. It's a part of our lives that will never go away. Even so, Many survivors of that day choose not to speak of the day, which has taken its own toll in the forms of post-traumatic stress, depression, substance abuse, and suicide. But as I've been reminded by a friend who was barely four years old that day, if those who were there don't talk about it, how will those who weren't, and those who were too young or not even born yet, 
understand and remember the events, the horror, the anguish, and the heroism that were September 11th, 2001. <clears throat> I took those words to heart. And so I'd like to take this time, <clears throat> excuse me, to share part of my story from that day at Ground Zero, a day that changed my life, a day that led me to co-found a nonprofit known today as Soldier Strong, that connects our country's injured military veterans to revolutionary medical technology so they can take their next steps forward. A day that seems a thousand years ago, and yet a day that seems like yesterday. I've been working on the manuscript for the last year and a half or so. I'd like to read you chapter one, which has led us here today. I remember looking at my shoes, staring at my shoes, contemplating what I had seen was about all I could muster the evening of September 11th, 2001. Like every American that day, I was in shock. Disbelief is almost too soft a word, and yet I have none better. In the first quiet moments of the day, it was hard to even begin processing what I had seen with my own eyes and had one step at a time walked out with other New Yorkers. It was hard to find a focal point, the thoughts, the emotions, the comforting calls of I'm safe to the agony of, of wondering about those not yet heard from all made it hard to even focus on a single meaningful thought. The fears of another attack, the constant news coverage, the carnage and devastation of it all made even the most disciplined minds spin. Oddly, it was a pair of shoes that changed that. Of all the things to dwell on, a pair of shoes is the first come memory I have that evening. Those shoes padded and protected every step from the American Stock Exchange, very near ground zero, all the way up to Second Avenue to my apartment on the Upper East Side. They stood as I watched a pilgrimage walking across the Brooklyn Bridge and out of the city over the course of the day. As my mind calmed and my thoughts began to focus, I thought about the men and women who took their next steps running into the chaos to protect and defend us that day. The sacrifices they made inspire on me still. It struck me for the first time, we take our next steps forward totally for granted, right up until we can't take our next step. I thought about all those who could never take another step. We would learn much later that nearly 3,000 people were killed in the attacks that day and more than 6,000 others were injured. That realization set me and so many other Americans on a different path, one of contemplation about how we had gotten where we were and so much more importantly, how we would all get to where we could be. Like every other American, I took my next steps forward for granted early that morning. How much would change in a single day? I'd started my career in financial services back in 1995, working for Hull Trading Company, a small proprietary trading firm based in Chicago. I went to work every day looking for great ideas, great companies, and great people to invest in. And we began looking for more and more innovative ways to help fund the best ideas and help them grow. Exchange-traded funds were relatively new when I started trading. In the whole trading, we were one of the first to use handheld technology on the trading floor. What you now know as real-time data was a revolutionary idea in an era where our competitors were trading based on pricing sheets that were printed once, maybe twice a day. And with the ability to communicate and adapt more quickly than other actors in the marketplace, we helped revolutionize Wall Street. Our approach caught the attention of Goldman Sachs back in 1999. When Goldman acquired us, I was running floor trading operations at the various exchanges in New York City. Those were exciting times for young professional in my line of work. The tech boom was just starting in earnest and trends in business, technology, and culture would redefine the country and the world. During my years in finance, I've watched as brands and products that connect us to a brighter future make their own revolutionary changes in our lives. Apple, Twitter, Google, Facebook, Lucent, Netflix, Uber, and the list goes on and on. The great brands that we invest in are brands that help us capture the future. 
They connect us to each other and they empower us to make choices. Said a different way, they drive access for all of us to the new economy we're going into, that economy defined by complexity and emergence. That economy that recognizes the transformative power of a great idea, product, or company without regard to the social status of the people driving it has opened more opportunity for more people than ever in human history. This is not an economy that demands conformity. Rather, it is all about connecting us to a brighter future through life-improving innovation. It's an economy about empowering each of us to help define that future instead of having it defined for us. It empowers us to strive for what we can become rather than remaining what we were. I've been very fortunate to have a front row seat in my professional life as these changes have taken hold. I didn't know it the morning of 9-11-2001, but these experiences looking for the new revolutionary capability that would drive innovation and therefore investor value will become foundational to driving toward revolutionary improvements and care for those who have served post 9-11. It's a powerful and liberating set of ideas that drew one of history's most despicable sneak attacks from the darkest and most backward corners of the extremist ideology that's hell-bent on trapping people in the past. I went to work investing in this innovation economy every day at the American Stock Exchange. The exchange was literally in the shadow of the World Trade Center's Twin Towers. Now for my September 11th, 2001. The morning of 9-11, I arrived for work at my normal time of around 7 a.m. I picked up my regular order of iced hazelnut coffee and a bagel with cream cheese from a street vendor outside our office building at 111 Broadway, with nothing particularly out of the ordinary on the agenda for the day. Since Goldman Sachs had acquired Hull, I was running floor trading for Goldman and managed a team of several people on each of three major exchanges. That included two traders and a clerk at the New York Board of Trade located inside Four World Trade Center. Throughout the summer of 2001, the markets had begun stabilizing in earnest from the burst of the tech bubble. It seems long forgotten now, but the disruption following that burst was a major global economic pre-9-11 event. Our morning meetings were designed around the reality that the bulk of the day's trading happened in the first 90 minutes and the last 90 minutes of a trading day, with the last 90 minutes generally focused on preparing for overnight risk. Morning meetings happened early enough to have each trading team ready on their respective floors on or before 8.30 a.m. That particular morning, I had a follow-up meeting that lasted past 8.46 a.m. In that office, with a window overlooking historic Trinity Church, we heard the bang at that time. It sounded like a New York City garbage truck hitting a pothole. Our view looked down the stretch of the city known as the Canyon of Heroes, so-called because it had historically been the route of ticker tape parades for astronauts, presidents, and most importantly, my beloved New York Yankees. Steve Rosen, a Goldman colleague, noticed it first, saying to our group, I didn't know we were having a ticker tape parade today. But the confetti was on fire. We turned our attention from the meeting to the television news, which had been tuned in the background to CNBC. The early reporting was that a small plane had hit the North Tower or One World Trade Center. The impact of the second plane at 9.03 a.m. followed the explosion was unmistakable. A few seconds after hearing and feeling it, we witnessed it nearly on live cable news along with the rest of America. I called our team at the New York Board of Trade, located in Four World Trade Center, to advise them to leave. Fortunately, they'd already left. There are a number of experienced traders from other firms that worked at that location, some of whom had been there during the 1993 bombing at One World Trade. I would learn later these experienced traders advised everyone to leave immediately, having sensed that something was desperately wrong. Our building at 111 Broadway shut down the elevators in the state of emergency. A group of four of us found a fire escape and made our way down a narrow spiral staircase from the 19th floor. 
One in our group was a coworker who recently had undergone knee surgery. The four of us took turns helping each other down. In a turn of good fortune, our coworker with a healing knee was able to get one of the last cabs out. I made the short trip from 111 Broadway across the street to the American Stock Exchange. I went about one block out of the way, walking to the corner of Cedar Street and Church Street from where the Twin Towers were immediately visible. I witnessed the two gaping holes in Towers 1 and 2. I also saw a letter company 10 on their way into the World Trade Center. It made an impression I will never forget. I learned later they were among the first on the scene. Another impression I will never forget is of a woman in a yellow and pink dress. She was falling. When I have nightmares of the experience, this is the singular memory that haunts me most. As she fell, she held her dress in one final act of dignity. But only a matter of moments from leaving 111 Broadway to reaching the Amex, there were moments that left me in shock and that would change all of our lives. The American Stock Exchange was letting credentialed people in, but was letting nobody out. I vividly remember seeing people inside the Amex trying to push the glass out so they could leave. Our team at the American Stock Exchange had grown to 14, and when I arrived, we began discussing our options. As a senior person on site, I released each of our team members from work and announced anyone who wanted to leave could and should do so. Due to the no exit policy of the Amex, each of our team members found their way out, sometimes creatively. It's odd what you think about in a moment like that. Rather than thinking about how to get home, I was on the phone with my boss in Chicago, discussing how to deal with the market opening amidst the chaos when the plane hit the Pentagon. We saw it on television. It was 9.37 a.m. That's when the urgency being under attack really hit me. I tried calling my mom to let her know I was okay. It went to her answering machine. I tried calling my wife. We'd been married for about a year and couldn't get her either. Shortly after, cell service crashed. I wouldn't speak to my wife until I saw her at home later that day. I was the last of the Goldman trading floor team at Amex, and the crowd of remaining people was far from typical. You run into random people in pandemonium like that. My best friend from kindergarten, John Lamarck, was a trader from another firm, and we spent a few minutes together in the uncertainty of the lockdown Amex. Then came the earthquake. From the floor of the exchange, that's what it felt like when the first tower fell. It was 9.59 a.m. The Amex was still not allowing people to leave, but it was becoming clear that that was an ill-advised mandate. Four of us, this, two, this time including my friend John Lamarck, Jim Ryan, Evan Thomas, and myself, all from rival firms, found a back fire escape from the Amex building. We noticed the fire escape was not being covered by building security, and we decided that, that was our opportunity to leave. The fire escape was at street level on Greenwich Street, and the World Trade Center was half a block to our right or north when we exited the building. We made a left turn and began walking. The thick, white, and gray ash was stifling. It limited forward visibility to about six feet or so. It choked our lungs, burned our eyes, and compounded the confusion and urgency of the moment. By this point, we were fully out of cell coverage and obviously not getting any news. Not that there was much clarity for reporters at that point anyway. One of the forgotten details of the day is that we heard what sounded like fighter jets overhead. In the fog of the attack, we had to wonder whose jets they were. My escape plan when we exited the building was to turn left, then go straight down until we got to the Staten Island Ferry Terminal, then turn left to hug the FTR. My thought was if the jets weren't ours and something happened, we could jump into the East River and take cover. Almost immediately starting our walk, we started seeing heroes rushing into the chaos. New York City Police, New York City Fire, EMS, and Metro Transit Authority. In the commotion, there may have been others too, and they just kept coming. It made an impression I will never forget and left a debt none of us can ever repay. When the second tower fell, 
it felt like a tremor compared to the first. I'm sure it was a matter of distance and perspective, but I didn't feel it as the earthquake the first collapse had been. It was now 10.28 a.m. As we walked up the river, the mass of people continued to grow. In the struggle to keep putting one front in front of the other, it could have been every person for him or herself, but it wasn't. We were all New Yorkers that day. We were all Americans that day. Mutual aid and care for total strangers was immediately the norm. In the face of the worst terror, we saw the best of humanity, even in the midst of a crisis itself. By the time we reached the Fulton Fish Market, they were handing out wet paper towels so people could clean the soot from their eyes. There were already people looking for their friends, coworkers, and family members who had been in or around the World Trade Center. My buddy Jim Ryan was the first of our three colleagues making, making the walk together to reach his apartment at Stuyvesant. He took our spouse's number so he could try to call from his home landline and let them know we were safe and making our way north by foot. Despite his efforts, he was unable to reach my wife. By the time we reached NYU Hospital, we were out of the cloud. Whatever wind was there that day was blowing north to south, which helped from our perspective. This was approximately where we began seeing pictures of people that loved ones were seeking information on, just two to three hours from the attacks themselves. It was approximately 2 p.m. when I finally arrived home. I was glad to be home, but I was numb. My wife had gotten home before me, and finding each other safe was one of the few joys of that day. She had arrived home with a colleague of hers that needed a place to stop and figure out next steps. My in-laws were at a conference in Colorado Springs when the attacks happened. I was able to talk with them by phone late in the afternoon. I remember standing in the shower, fully clothed, talking with them and making sure they were okay. The bathroom in our small apartment was the closest place for private conversation at that point. Knowing what I had just witnessed and the seriousness of the situation in New York, I had one of the most direct and <laughs> declarative conversations I'd ever had with my in-laws, with whom I have a great relationship with. They needed plans to get back home to Castleton, New York, just outside of Albany. I remember squatting in the tub and telling my father-in-law they were not getting on a plane to head back east for home. I told them I'd get in the car and drive them back, but they were not going to fly. It turned out, thankfully, to be the most difficult conversation I had that day. Commercial flights began to resume on September 14th. Yet like millions of Americans, I was not ready to see my loved ones back on a plane that quickly without much better understanding of what happened and how we were going to prevent it from happening again. In a moment of overwhelming relief from my mother, I was finally able to talk with her early that evening and assure her I was safe. Then I watched President George W. Bush's address from the Oval Office. It was 8.30 p.m. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. And no one will keep that light from shining. Today, our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature, and we responded with the best of America. Those words rang in my ears. I'd witnessed the substance, both good and evil, of which people spoke. It's hard not to remember exactly what we talked about and thought about in the hours between getting home and watching the president. There I was filled with seeking information, reaching out to loved ones to let them know we were okay, and seeking absorbing whatever news reports could tell us. But those hours were hollow and numb until the day began to end with the remarks of our president. And that's how I got to dwelling on those shoes. As I sat, crouching down to take them off, it struck me. The dust and ash covering them wasn't just rubble from the buildings. It included the remains of indiscriminately murdered men, 
women and children whose last steps on this earth had unexpectedly been taken just hours before. As I write these words, we're approaching 20 years since the awful events of 9-11-2001. I've yet to clean those shoes and I never will. They remind me every day that for nearly 3,000 people, the only next, door, next steps forward they will take are the ones we take in their hunter. That evening and in the days that followed, I know how or when, but I knew that my calling life was to help others take the next steps forward. It took years and in fact, decades to figure out a path in its full form and they had enough experience that I felt I had something valuable to share with the rest of the world. The pages that follow share the journey of the steps, small and large, since that day that seek to give every American the opportunity to take their own next steps forward. They catalog some of the things we've learned. They tell some of the stories and perhaps most importantly, they prescribe a better way to make sure all of us can still be about who we can become and where we can go. I'm Chris Meek, and this is Next Steps Forward. Let us never forget. I will never forget. for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.